hola, hola, amigos, amigos, players, playerettes, doo-doo-dets, everybody in between. Welcome to episode 109. Yeehaw. Constituting the 109th attempt to take us off the podcasting air has failed. We have returned for another glorious episode, comrades. Right, Murph? Glorious. Glorious. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is going to be a hell of a lot better than the review we just did for the Narcometer. Oh, oh. <laughs> and if you've listened to it again, I apologize. <laughs> Which I'm going to get into that, friend, just a second. Hey, guys, welcome back. Um, hey, just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. It does. It means a lot to us. It helps us out. Not only does it bring in advertisers, it brings in new listeners, it helps us grow our reach, and actually has been affording us some uh, new uh, and interesting opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, series-wise, some other stuff, so we'll head on over there. By the way, guys, if you're listening on Stitcher, just remember, I believe it's in August, Stitcher goes away, so if you're listening on Stitcher, uh, move your listening pot platform to uh, you know one of the others, Apple, Spotify, whatever it is you guys choose to do, just head on over there. Head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot of good stuff on there, including our book list. The book list is always good. Um, we just, uh, our a guest from last week, John Norris, we put a couple of his books up there. Just awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But I'm telling you, we were just talking about the Narcometer review. You will only find the Narco, the patented and trademark narcometer review on patreon.com slash game of crimes uh you know we just got through recording that before we did this intro outro i think it's one of our best movie reviews but i'll tell you it was one of our most painful ones oh my god just watching the movie was not at all what i remembered (laughs) we took two hours and 12 minutes of pain so you only had to take one hour of pain (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness we'll do better next time so, and we got some good stuff coming out. Our Warden of the Throne. If you are Warden of the Throne, we have a special announcement from you. For you, you will only hear it there. You will not hear it anywhere else before it comes out. So, if you're Warden of the Throne at our highest level, and when I mean very special announcement, I mean very special announcement yeah. of what an episode we have coming up. But we've also got nine one one case of the month. Uh, you know, you can't make this shit up. Uh, and and our one of our favorite things. We're already getting in Q and A's for Q and A. So. Very got, cool. There's some there's some stuff for you too, Murph. Sweet. Yeah, I, I, that's one of my favorite things that we do because it's a direct input from our listeners, and we haven't turned down a single question yet. No, nope, we've spread them out over a few episodes. Thank you again, Alex Collins. Uh, okay, <laughs> Alex, keep the questions coming. Man. Keep them Don't coming, bro. Them. All right, hey, um, but hey, th- but that's where you need to be. So head on over to Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. We've got a ton of content there that you're going to enjoy. Um, but you know what? You also got to go to Game of Crimes fans run by our favorite mafia queen, uh, the Iron Fist with the Velvet Glove. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, just answer a couple easy questions, get admittance into the inner sanctum. Hilarity ensues, jocularity ensues, um, and insularity ensues. We insulate you from the bad things of the rest of the world because we do good stuff inside there. Yeah. Yeah, what he said. What he, the arities. Yeah, the, it, it ends in T-Y. A lot of, monos- mon- lot of polysyllabic words there, Murph. I apologize. We'll keep it to one syllable. <laughs> let's move on all right well as you can see we take the yeah, this is the show uh and disclaimer guys this is a show about crime we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people we take the story seriously but you know we don't take ourselves serious unless we absolutely have to and most of the time we don't have to we don't have to not anymore um nobody dies you know this is we're not storming the beaches at normandy Ben. this that's is just right. a podcast that's right so murph how do we demonstrate to folks that we don't take this seriously. What is it that we might do 
almost every episode to document the fact that we don't take this seriously. It might be something called, it's time for <laughs> Small Town Police Blotter. A little bit of James Bond there. Summer, ever been to a wedding? Several. Have you ever, what have you thrown at the weddings? Rice. Yeah, one guy had the right idea, just bad timing. So a South Carolina man, this is in Myrtle Beach. And I got to tell you, this is one of the, the only reason, I don't know how funny it is, but it's like, I have just never, why would you do this? So police say a Jaime's Encarnacion, uh, not, 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 not Incarnation, but Encarnacion, 31, he was collared Monday after following a late night incident. Uh, he has been charged with misdemeanor assault and battery. What did he do? Um, hmm. Well, I gave you a clue. He threw rice. Why would he threw rice into the vehicle of a 43-year-old male witness? While it's unclear who was the intended target, the rice hit, struck a 39-year-old South Carolina woman sitting on the passenger side. When cops arrived, they noticed Encarnacion was holding a takeout container of rice. Clue number one. Uh, and additionally, rice was observed inside the vehicle. Clue number two. Um, why? I'm sorry, man. Why would you? What would possess you to see a car going by and say, "Look, I want to throw my rice in there." And he's carrying a container. Did he just go to a, a Chinese restaurant, an Asian well, restaurant? Well, right next to it was a uh, Mexican. Uh, the incident occurred on a retail strip adjacent to an ocean beach, as well as a Mexican eatery and a restaurant selling sushi. So there's where your rice is probably going to come from. Yeah, uh, doofus. Good cry. You know what? Uh, Myrtle Beach used to be our go-to beach. and it, When we lived in West Virginia, it was like a state law. If you wanted to maintain your citizenship in West Virginia, you had to go to Myrtle Beach once a year. That's where everybody went throughout the whole state, you know? But uh, as we've moved around, we continue to try to go there. But it just, you know, I mean, you folks know I'm a small town boy. I'm like a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly. And I thought Myrtle Beach had become so redneck that I, we weren't comfortable taking our kids there anymore. So we haven't been there in a long, long time, which I'm, I'm sad to say because I just love that place. Well, you're going to love this next one, too. So. You know, we have, we've had stories of people that have done stupid shit and they put it on their T-shirts, you know, as they've been booked in, like, um, say no to drugs and they're being busted for drugs, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know stupid stuff like that, right? Um, so, Robert Burt, he was busted for operating under the influence, driving without a license. He's a resident of the central town of Pittsfield, Maine. Okay. So, uh, he was, you know, he was, when he was booked into jail for that, he was wearing a white t-shirt, you know, and had a slate in his hand there that you hold it up and you say, here's my name, booking date and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, he goes, he, he pleads guilty, cops a plea. He's ordered to spend two days in custody. Um, so, uh, this just occurred, uh, this just occurred, well, recently. So he, he posts on Facebook, Hey, going to go to do my 48 hours. Woohoo. So he arrives at the jail. He was searched again, posed and directed to post for a mug, mugshot. Uh, so he decides he's going to wear a T-shirt. <laughs> you know what his T-shirt was? Uh, uh, I bet it doesn't say, don't do meth. No. The T-shirt was, he gets, his booking photo is a booking photo of him with the T-shirt of his original booking photo on there. <laughs> so he put himself in a booking photo on his shirt so he could get another booking photo. Oh. Uh, you know, this is why you're going to jail, pal. <laughs> Felony stupidity. Good grief. Uh, uh, okay. <clears throat> Makes no sense. What's the stupidest thing I can do to embarrass myself? Because, you know, me going to jail is not enough embarrassment. Well, he, he, you know, he happily wore it. You know, he told people on Facebook, uh, 
you know, um, that corrections officer made him hold the slate in a way so you could see the shirt. He said they laughed their asses off. Ha ha. Well, um, not realizing they're not laughing with him. They're laughing at him. Yeah. Well, apparently uh, he was having a family reunion because while he was in jail, one of his relatives was there, too. So they keep mentioning the family reunion. Hey, mom. Uh, when they talk of this. <laughs> That's you right. Cross the way there. Everything okay? Yeah. Bring you cookies. This would not be a complete episode without a Florida story, a Florida man story. Yeehaw. Hey, like I say, you can be a leader, you can be a follower. We like to be the leaders. So this happened in St. Pete, uh, you know, down in your, not not quite your neck of the woods, but, you know, around there, near Tampa. You, you know, know, a lot of the stories come out of St. Pete, and it's just such a beautiful place. I love and it. And it attracts there. all the idiots. So, uh, Apparently. Murph, you know, they'll do a lot of undercover work down there. You'll have an undercover female uh, officer posing, uh, you know, as a prostitute to get people to solicit them. Normally, when you solicit a prostitute, what are you exchanging for the services? Money. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes dope, like, hey, I'll give you, you know, an eight ball, you know, for this or whatever. Or rent right? or whatever. I'm, you know, I guess whatever. Not unless you're Frank Capone. Uh-oh. What's Frank uh, got? Frank, well, Frank ain't got brains, I can tell you that. So... <laughs> <laughs> he wanted he wanted oral sex from an undercover female cop in exchange for a hamburger. <laughs> okay. I'll pay you tomorrow for a hamburger today. Who's that, the yeah. Popeye character? If I was the undercover officer, I'd go, yeah. <laughs> you hear the zipper go down and go, where's the beef? You know? Oh. <laughs> bump. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Try the wheel. <laughs> so um, he's not the brightest guy. He was booked on a misdemeanor prostitution account. Prostitution count, I should say. His rap sheet includes convictions for grand theft and battery on a law enforcement officer. Cops noted that Capone, who operates an auto body shop, has a death before death dishonor tattoo on his right arm and a grim reaper linked on his forearm. Yeah, he's a bad guy. He just ain't smart. Oh, jeez. Well, you know, if it was a five guy, five guys burger, now we might have to. You talk. know, we might we might discuss something like that or In and Out Burger, animal style. You know, something like that. That's yeah, that's a pro tip. If you guys have ever been to In and Out Burger. Um, Order your stuff animal style. It's not on the restaurant. It's one of those off or a menu. It's one of those off menu. You got to know it's there. So animal style. What's animal that mean? style? I, you got to look it up, pal. Go to an In and Out Burger and order animal style. Hmm. Okay. The first rule of Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club. First rule of animal style is we don't talk about animal style. All right. So, I've been to In and Out, but I have never heard of that. Got to got to do it next time. So anyway, so anyway, but that, that you know, hey, just as that's your. Uh, you know, Crap. hilarity. Now, you know. Now I got homework. Now you got homework to do. Well, speaking of homework, you got some homework to do too, Murph, because uh, it is your job now to introduce our next guest. <clears throat> you know, this is a special honor for me, and and I, and I would say that about a lot of people. Uh, Morgan and I are fortunate enough to know a lot of true heroes around the world, and, and we try to bring as many of them in here as we can. And the lady we've got today um, has never really been involved in law enforcement as a, a sworn officer. However, when I met her, she was uh, one of the executive vice presidents with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And we were doing some things in conjunction with the uh, DEA Educational Foundation, which is a nonprofit that I support. And, uh, and the lady today is Julie Ridkay. I, I really uh, got to like Julie and what she represented in Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And she invited me last year to speak at their national conference in Indianapolis, and I did on stage with her. But prior to that... I got to know Julie's story, and that's what you're going to hear today. It was one of the most inspirational, motivational stories I'd ever heard. I got her to tell her story, which was the first time she'd ever done it in Indianapolis. 
when I got up and did my presentation, people were nice and applauded. When Julie finished her story, everybody was crying and gave her a standing ovation. And that's kind of led into her. And she said, you know, this is, you know, you gave me the courage to stand up and I'm not taking credit for anything because this is her story. And hell, I still tear up when I hear her tell it. But what she has done now is she moved into another occupation because I reached out to her several months ago and sent her an email said, hey, we'd love to have you on the podcast and didn't hear back from her. And I thought, well, I guess she's you're just blowing me off. And then lo and behold, I get a, uh, an email from her. She said, oh, I'd love to talk to you and tell you about my new occupation. She's now <laughs> the head of the American Police Athletic League. The, and they call it the Police National Athletic League, or the American National Police Athletic League, but it's actually international. And she's going to tell you all about it. But this is one of the best stories of how you cannot let your circumstances get you down. You set the tone as to what you can over- overcome in life. I love hearing her story. Um, Connie and I are looking forward to meeting her and her husband for dinner here soon because they don't live all that far away from us here in Florida. But uh, just so proud, proud of you, Julie, for what you've done and having the courage to tell your story and what you've accomplished in life. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is this is one of our our excellent. If you're having a hard time in life, or anybody in your family does and needs an inspirational story, this is the one you want to listen to today. Yeah, and I would go back to, after you listen to this, go back and listen to episode 29, Sherry Foster. You can be yeah. either a victim or a victor. Yeah. Julie Redkay is the absolute epitome of overcoming. And it's more than just the, the fact that she's the head of PAL, which is great. When you She does have a background with law, not in law enforcement, but with law enforcement. And when you hear what she went through mm-hmm. to get to where she is today, tell you what, you're going to be amazed. But there's only one way we're going to find out about that, Murph. And I have to ask you, are you ready to play? The biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. Absolutely. I'm excited to say this today. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. And and you might want to grab a tissue or two on the side here. But Julie, come on. Tell us your story, girl. I'm, I'm proud of you. Well, Murph... I normally kick things off, and I am, well, obviously I'm kicking things off right now, but I'm going to let you kick this off because what you wrote up, we we keep track of our notes in Trello about our guests that are coming up, and I'm just going to let you take it from there. Well, and I'm sure our listeners are happy that I'm going to kick it off because they get tired of listening to you all the time, and I don't have a mute button where I can turn you off, but uh, that's something we're working on, everybody. So Don't worry, Murph. You turned me off quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> hey, but listen, uh, today is a special guest, a special friend of mine that I got to meet virtually over a year ago. Um, I've been a big supporter of the DEA Educational Foundation for the past several years, and uh, we were doing some things last year with Big Brothers Big Sisters, and so I got to everything was done virtually because it was still you know the remnants of COVID and people weren't comfortable coming out to getting together, and so they introduced me to today's guest Julie Redkay. Now at the time Julie was a uh, I think a senior VP over federal grants for the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and and we did a number of, of virtual events talking to parents and kids and and other people in, in an organization. And Julie called me one day, and, and she couldn't find anybody. She had talked to everybody in the world, and nobody else would be a speaker at the Big Brothers Big Sisters National Conference last year. She's like, well, I know this one idiot named Murphy. So you were bottom of the barrel. You're admitting <laughs> Hey, you just got to know your place in the world, right? And so I was honored to go to Indianapolis, uh, meet with her last year. Uh, that was the first time we met in person. 
And I and I remember <laughs> I remember what you said when you came down the hallway. I was sitting on the side there because I didn't know a soul in this place. And there's thousands of people walking around. And uh, she came walking up and, and I'd seen her online before, so I knew what you looked like. And she said, she said, you got to be Steve Murphy. And I said, hi, Julie, how are you? She said, I knew it was you when I was coming down the hallway because I could see your spit shine shoes sticking out from that chair, <laughs> which I guess is indicative of a cop. But uh, uh, but here's the the cool thing about this. So Julie and I had discussed what, what I talk about. And of course, I was telling uh, a redacted version of the Escobar story. But then I learned about Julie's story. And I challenged her at that time. I said, you know, you have one of the most motivational stories I've ever heard in my life. And and I'll probably tear up during your presentation today, Julie, just like I did when we were in Indianapolis. But it's a story of of overcoming all the odds that are against you that's, that tell you you are not going to be a success in life. And this young lady has done it. Uh, I tell you what, when I finished my presentation, people were polite and, and applauded for me when... Julie finished her presentation. There wasn't a dry in the house, and got, you got a standing ovation. Um, and that's, I'm just so proud of, of the way things have gone. Uh, I mentioned to you back then about coming on our podcast, and I actually sent you an e- email a few months ago, and I didn't realize you had changed jobs. And I thought, well, I guess she just doesn't want to tell me her story. But lo and behold, she emailed me to tell me about her new adventures, and uh, that's what developed into today. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my really, really close friend here, my good friend, Julie Redkay. Drum roll. Yay. <laughs> Thank you both. I'm I'm so thrilled uh to be to be asked to be here today. Yeah. Oh, let's wait till the podcast is yeah. over. You may wish to retract your statement. <laughs> <laughs> you might tell me, don't ever call me again. I never say that again. <laughs> uh, well, well, Julie, as we do with all of our guests, we talk about thing of ours, Cosa Nostra. So with cops, we say how'd you get started? With criminals, we say how'd you get started. So with you. Your really thing is about how you get started really goes back to the story of your dad, your family and stuff. And it's so important to get the backstory to get the context. So tell, I mean, first of all, tell us, you know, like, where'd you grow up and what was it like growing up? What was, you know, like you think you start thinking about when did you start realizing things weren't like other families? So I grew up in Miami and and I, I, I talked with Steve about, um, you know, when he was down there in Miami and Fort Lauderdale on one side of the coin, uh, chasing the bad guys, uh, my family and I were on the other side of the coin. So I grew up in Miami and when everybody thinks about Miami, they think about, you know, sexy South Beach. Um, they think about the good things that you would think of when you were going, you know, to have a trip in Miami. I grew up in Liberty City in an area that was very... Um, had a lot of very violent crime and my father was a substance abuser. So Which, I would say, go ahead. Do you ahead. remember what kind of sub, what was, do you remember? I, I do. So he started out as a cocaine user and um, very shortly afterwards, because you think about uh, cocaine, the amount of money it takes to support that habit, um, he turned into somebody who was addicted to crack. And I would find, you know, three, four, five years old, and and somehow I knew what they were. I knew it wasn't sugar packets. Um, I would find bags of cocaine and crack kind of around the house, but I knew not to touch them. Who else? Tell us about your family, too. So it was you, mom, w- dad, yeah. who was there? Mom, mom, dad, myself, and uh, seven years later, a uh, younger brother. And so, you know, very 
kind of what you would think of as a seedy, seedy place um, in Miami. Uh, it kind of, we were, uh, I would say, barricaded by I-95 and some businesses down there in an alleyway. Um, and it was, I would say it was an interesting childhood. There were a lot of times where maybe there wasn't food. Um, you know, so food insecurity was part of it for me, um, and, and my family. But I, I say, I say that, but I also say that my mother kind of being stuck between a rock and a hard place, um, did her best to make it like I would say akin to it's a beautiful life of, okay, well, let's, let's try and have this adventure together and doing the best that she could at making it what she could at the time being in that situation. Did she ever try to leave? At the, towards the end, she did. My father was the love of her life. And, you know, she had, because it was putting us in very, very precarious situations, um, she did. She said, you've got to go to rehab. If we're going to make this work, you've got to go to rehab and we've got to be apart from each other. You've got to go and do this. But how many years after, like you say, from five years, 10 years later? Mm -hmm. 10 years later, um, we would, I mean, it was, it was such a dichotomy. We talk about like, I think what we see on TV or like what I'd see on a dateline or something, you know, that's the, that's the sexy stuff, but it really was like growing up in a movie, um, you know, where we grew up in a certain way, wouldn't have food, you know, I, I, I was experiencing all of these things as well as the addiction of my father and seeing the effects of that. But we would also go to multimillionaire homes because he was also a drug runner. And so it was this kind of not understanding as a child of, well, if there's all of this around, this surplus and things that you would see in the movies, then why don't we have food? When did you when did you first realize? So he was a, a, a user and abuser, but how did he get hooked up running dope? Running was he? Did you ever run into anybody you later knew to be cartel people or uh, meet any of these folks? Yeah, so he developed this. I would say cadre of of good friends, and and very few of them were users. More of them were probably on the lower to mid-tier level of of drug running um, between cocaine and marijuana. And, you know, I I would hear these these stories, but we would go over to homes of these drug runners or drug lords, and it was very, very apparent to me as even even a child. what what was going on and the need to obviously support his habit was not by a nine to five job. Well, when you guys were out of food, when you were at these places, I mean, did you try and grab some food? Did you try and, you know, do some stuff to bring home? No, I never, I never did. I was always what I would consider kind of a perfectionist, a very, a very good little girl. One of the things that I, I always had in the back of my mind because I would, you know, there would be long, long periods of time where I would not be in school because, you know, my mother had to be there literally watching my father to make sure that he wouldn't overdose. And so I always wanted to, I was running that line of making sure that nobody came to 
take me away. That was always in the back of my mind. Mm. Is this when you were in, in elementary school or middle school? Yes. Both. Yes. Do you remember getting any visits from social services? Anybody come by? No. I, I Well, I remember one time I had this very, very caring teacher. I believe it was in third or fourth grade. And she was just she had the sweetest, kindest heart. And she did come by the home and said, you know, I wanted to bring her some some work and some busy work. And I think she probably knew what was going on. And and the fear in me just to think that I would, this was going to be the start of, you know, me being taken out of the home um, was extremely real. Well, how did you cope? I mean, what, what did you do to cope when there was no food? I mean, did your mom make games up? I mean, look, at some point, kids know, I'm hungry. By the way, is somebody trying to tear down your house in the background there? Yeah, I know. We have a weed eater going on, and uh, I can I can very easily move into a different no, space no, no, if no, that no, would no. be better. No, no. Let me tell you, it was so funny when we're talking to his partner, Kevin Stevenson. Um, his partner was actually shot, what, down in Hialeah, right, Merv? Yeah, and... But we tried like three or times to arrange this interview. Finally, we said, screw it. Just do it. Yeah. They can't weed eat forever. So, look. <laughs> Unless you got like a nine-acre yard or something. Hey, Murph and Julie, hold on for that. We've got something we want to tell you about right now. And it's True Crime Obsessed. If you guys love True Crime Podcasts, I want to tell you about True Crime Obsessed. Each week on True Crime Obsessed, hosts Patrick and Jillian tell a fascinating crime story by recapping a popular documentary based on the case. Now, their storytelling is detailed, suspenseful, but also entertaining and funny. A listener review put it best by saying these two strike the perfect balance between humor and thriller. Listening to them, I'm belly laughing while at the same time locking my doors and turning on all the lights. And you know, with over 200 million downloads and a thriving community of listeners, True Crime Obsessed has been at the top of the podcast charts now for over six years. They have over, they have over 30,000 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and their live shows sell out theaters all over the U.S. and internationally. They even host an annual weekend-long fan convention called Obsessed Fest. That sounds like fun. Where they can bring together thousands of their listeners with some of the top true crime creators in the world. So if you've never checked out True Crime Obsessed, now's the time to join their community. So if you're looking for a new True Crime Obsession, follow True Crime Obsessed wherever you get your podcasts. There are over 300 episodes waiting for you to check out right now, covering everything from serial killers to notorious murders to the cases you haven't heard about yet but won't be able to forget. That's True Crime Obsessed wherever you're listening right now. Okay, Murph, let's get back to you and Julie now. No, so, um, and and I'll have to ask you to repeat what the question was, and then I'll. No, no, no. I mean, how did you how did you cope? How did you get through this? Because at some point, kids know their bellies. There's something wrong. They may not be able to articulate it. Even five, six. I mean, but you know, something's wrong. It's like, mommy, where's the food? When are we going to eat again? You know. My mom would, you know, to to her complete credit, she just, you know, the way that I escaped was through books. Um, I would, you know, I would just go and, and I couldn't visualize success in my own life or how could we get ever get out of this, but I could through books. And so she would, you know, I could read by the time I was two or three and, and, you know, I just took off with that and that became my world. What was your favorite? Do you remember what your favorite series was or what your favorite, uh, genre was it was well it was it was a hand-me-down book and it was called little miss Susie. and there were there were bad squirrels and there were good squirrels in there and i could very i could equate that to to life um but you know it's it's 
it's interesting because like what I was saying earlier, um, the gray area is what's not sexy and what doesn't get talked about a lot. The families of whether it be drug cartels, the kids, um, or whether it be somebody who is suffering substance abuse, you know, that's, that's not what's going to be on Dateline. But that's what I could, you know, that was my life. That was the life for my mother and eventually my brother. Did you have friends? I did, but it was very, and what I talked about when I first talked about this professionally, I was extremely guarded and and my life was very compartmentalized unless they were somebody that was part of the world. Um, it, I, I really only had one friend and she... Uh, her mother unfortunately succumbed to AIDS from drug use. So it was, it was, it was definitely you were in that world and you could feel kind of free and unburdened to talk about things and know that there wouldn't be any consequences to talking about things. That is also part of, I would say, the culture. Well, you know, for our listeners that are not familiar with the Miami area, Liberty City is uh, an, an extreme, or it was, I haven't been there in years, but it was an extremely violent section of Miami. Um, what I remember, and and I don't mean to you know run down where you grew up, but uh, it seemed like it was very poverty stricken. There was a lot of trash around. Um, houses were run down. It was I can't imagine as a kid, tough tough place to grow up. And in the eighties, it was interesting because they didn't have any regulations on uh, if your water bill wasn't paid, you not having running water. Period. So there were there were creative periods where we would, uh, my family would hook up the hose to the neighbor's yard, and that's how that's how we would shower. I mean, you just you you did what you needed to do. But yeah, it was. I I grew up, and not until I was not until after college did I realize what was kind of seated in me: super hyper vigilant state all the time. I mean, there would be oftentimes gunshots outside the house, um, robberies in the businesses that were close by. We were mugged at our front door. Um, and there was, th- for a little while, um, because they had the keys to our home, um, it was it was kind of like, okay, are they coming back? So, yeah, it was... It was a lot of hypervigilance, and I hear about police officers always knowing where the exits are, always knowing, you know, a way of egress, and that was just a norm for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the 80s, that was the heyday, Murph. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you get, I mean, that's the heydays of the Coke trade, stuff's going on. When, you know, when did it become apparent, you know, you talked about you saw your dad, you saw these bags around the house and stuff. Um but when did it really become apparent is that it was dangerous? I mean, kids sometimes don't really equate danger, but, you know, you talked about violence and stuff. When, when's, when's like one of the first times when you realized is like, th- this doesn't seem like normal. I mean, it's like you were really afraid. You were really scared. Um, I, I would say when we, there were two instances and they probably each had nothing to do with the drug trade themselves, but maybe they were byproducts of. So there was a business that was right across the alley from our home. And w- when we saw somebody scaling that business and heard gunshots, and then um, there was a gentleman that was running from the police and my father happened to be there at the time and happened to be coherent enough to where he, he actually tackled that guy and and he was arrested on our front yard. No kidding. No, no <laughs> he kidding. Helped, he, with everything he was doing, he helped out the police? He, he did. 
he did. So in terms of interactions with the police, how often did you have interactions with the police, whether it was directly affecting you or you saw them in the neighborhood or something like that going on? Did you see much of them growing up? No, I didn't. There was not a large police presence where we where we were. Um, and, you know, my, my dad got arrested a couple of times. And so I knew about that, but that was more tertiary. I'd say my real, my real first involvement with the police was with a, um, a homicide detective. Yeah, before we get to that was before we get to there. Let's kind of lead up to that too. Um, as you started getting older, though, um, w- did you ever try to leave? I mean, did you ever? When a lot of kids look. I did stupid stuff. Like I ran away. I ran away about you know half a mile to a backyard somewhere. That was about as far as I got. But did you ever think about running away or ever do it? No, and I'll tell you why. I I there were a couple of times where we would visit my grandparents and that was the only place that I felt safe growing up, the only place. And so I would dream of being up there, but I knew I I couldn't even play in the backyard. I mean, that's, that's just how kind of seedy it was. There would be people consistently walking up and down the alley, whether they were homeless or maybe had, you know, bad intentions or didn't. And so there wasn't really any kind of playing outside or going to, you know, walk to X as a kid. And so I didn't really, my mind couldn't go there of where could I go other than being, you know, taken away. Were you ever attacked as a young kid by uh, neighbors or, you know, or strangers or anything? Did you ever, did you ever get physically attacked? No, the closest that came to it was when we were robbed at the front door, and that was the first time I'd ever heard my mother curse. And so I know it was—I knew it was really, really bad. Was bad. Yeah, I knew it was bad. Why did they rob you? Um, just to, anything just, related to your dad, or was it just a crime of opportunity? You know, I don't know if it was a crime of opportunity or something that was related. And I and I say that because there would be times when he was. It, Again, it was just such a dichotomy of just oddness. There would be time where times where he would bring home a suitcase with a million dollars in it. And like, you know, how you okay, could put well, your well, family well, in that situation. Wow. Let's let's rewind a little bit. You <laughs> Wow. You see a did did he show it to you? Did he have any qualms about showing you the money and you know, here's what I'm doing or did you as a kid, you know, investigating or being curious, did you find it out on your own? I didn't find that. I found drugs, but my mother was telling me, you know, hey, listen, um, it, yeah, he would be very, very excited about things like that. Like he was, he was um, entrusted with that responsibility to deliver a million dollars to whomever he was taking it to. Did you see the cash? I didn't see the cash. She did, and she told me about it. She was very good at trying to protect me. And, you know, my brother from everything that was going on. Well, I mean, you talk about going from one end of the spectrum to the other where you don't have food in the house. You may not even have a house. (laughs) You got a million dollars there in front of you. It's uh, And the thing is, none of that goes to you guys. Yeah, and I'm shocked that, that your dad didn't even, you know, I mean, take some of it just to help things out. I'm not shocked. It, it, he was, I, I don't know how, how far his, you know, his brain had deteriorated or anything had, you know, taken a hold of him by that point. But I, I think he still had this, you know, he had a very good heart and, you know, I, I want to make sure and not disparage him in 2D. He had a good heart. He was a brilliant man. He just, he succumbed to something that he couldn't, he couldn't make the decision to get over. 
And um, I'm not shocked that he wouldn't put his family in more danger than he realized that that he that he was, um, as far as things like that go, or taking any drugs from people that he knew he shouldn't be taking it from and putting us in harm's way. Um, well, he was so, he was coherent enough to probably realize what the results would be. Yes. Yeah. Looking with the advantage of time, looking back, um, did you ever figure out where things went wrong for him or what prompted it to go wrong? Yeah. My dad was, a, and I had to get over this too, he was a big people pleaser. And so um, there was a time in his life right when he started high school little bit thereafter. And putting that into context, he and my mother got very, very young. I think he was 25. She was 21. And so he didn't have many friends when he would move down here by my grandfather at, at that age. And so he got into drugs with the people that accepted him. And that happened to be the the drug culture in later later high school when he was graduating. And it just kind of went from there. Wow. And that's, you know, it's it's tough growing up. You don't know it's dysfunctional. You think that's the way it is, right? I mean, so let's kind of move forward a little bit because I wanted to get into some of this other part of the story. But as you start to get older, do things start to get more dangerous or do you start becoming um, more concerned about what's going on or is it just like life is normal? It's my normal life, but I do start to become more concerned because I'm seeing things happen that, you know, have tried to be shielded from me, such as, you know, my father's driving us around. Now, at that point, um, you have somebody that is seriously addicted to a substance and is, when you think about that, is is driving an eight, nine, ten-year-old child around. And my mother couldn't drive at the time. And so, I started seeing cues like that, um, seeing him overdose a few times. Did he take you uh, on deals when he would go out and make deals? I'm sure he, I'm sure he did because these these homes we weren't there to just, you know, to just visit. I'm it sure wasn't he was a there social to get visit. product. Yeah. It was not a social visit. What so how old were you when your brother was born? Uh I was 7. How did that uh, how, you know how did that affect you? Now you've got there's another mouth to feed, right? Now there's having a newborn, a lot more stress. Uh how did that affect things? So it it gave me a little bit I I always I like to say that I I took on the role of parenting the parent. So I would see these things around and then try and okay how how can I help? Because you know, what can I do to make things better or try and make things better? So, you know, in a way I helped to raise him. Um, tried to shield and protect him. That was what I saw my role as because I couldn't do anything to get out of it at the time. Was your mom an enabler too? Yes, very much so. She adored my father and wanted him to get on the other side of things. And so, you know, she not only wanted to protect him from the outside world and judgment from family and everything else, but also had no business trying to take care of him in that state, but always wanted to take care of him, um, lie for him with his legitimate job so that he wouldn't be, you know, fired. What was his legitimate job? He was a butcher. So he was, he was a butcher. That's, you know, he was, he was an excellent cook and chef. And I remember he would tell me 
to what extent this is true, I don't know, but there was a, a very popular show going on at the time. And that's kind of the, the sexy version of Miami and what people would think of. And he would tell me he was going fishing with one of the cast members and, uh, and bring home lobster. And so you talk about kind of the juxtaposition between going without for days at a time and then having what then I knew to be lobster. What What is this? <laughs> <laughs> Again, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And that's, that's just right. one of the, the characteristics of drug addiction is it just, there's no defined area. It just covers the gamut of what could potentially happen. Right. Well, it's, it's very much like ha- like having alcoholic parents, which I went through. You know, it's this uh, codependency. It's this enablement. Mm-hmm. It's this um, it making excuses, you know, and always believing, you know, hoping beyond hope that, oh, things are going to change. I promise I'm going to get better. You know, I'm not going to do this again. But that leads me to a, a different question, too. With all of the stuff going on, was your dad ever violent to you, your mom, your brother? No. He was always an extremely gentle man. Very, very docile. And I think that probably goes into his people-pleasing personality. Um, I, The only time I ever saw him raise his voice was when my mother was trying to get him help. And, you know, it was, it was just not something that his addiction or that he was willing or ready to do. So, as you start getting older, I know you're missing school, but as you start getting older... It's kind of one of those things. It's like it becomes noticeable if you're in fourth or fifth or sixth grade when you're missing a lot of days. When did things stabilize for you along that point, or did it ever for you for school? No, it it, it didn't. And I think that that was an interesting, interesting piece that played out throughout all of my schooling, um, even even later on. Um, and and I wonder if you know nobody took notice or made a visit, which I'm. I'm kind of grateful that see, they did. I, I got to. I'm sorry to interrupt you right there. See, that's the part that's just blowing my mind right there. With the number of days that you miss, why? Why? Where is? I know you only had one nosy teacher, but where is the system that that is part of the safety net that says, "Hey, look, we got an at-risk kid here. We got somebody that's at youth, you know, or a youth that's at risk." Why? How did? How did this system completely miss for years? I mean, how many? How many? I mean, how were you able to even pass from one grade to the other with a number of, I mean, you're obviously smart. We've got that because you're using words Murph doesn't understand, like juxtaposition and dichotomy. We're going to have to, I'll have to, I'll text him the meanings. Now you know why I need a mute button, right, Julie? (laughs) Uh, I do, but I've got the thesaurus here if if we need to help out. (laughs) Thesaurus is a book, Murph, that that tells you similar. She's got my back and I'm not, I'm going to respect her and not give you the typical sign language that I would at this moment. (laughs) Murph's very good at sign language. Uh, But, but how did you, but how did you, you progress from one grade to the other without being held back or, you know, being, or did you get held back? Um, I almost did for one, for one grade, I believe it was fourth grade, um, just because of the sheer number of days that were missed. But I, I have a theory and I don't know if it's correct or just a presumption of, you know, this was Miami in the eighties and I don't know the child protective services or whatever they were called at the time, HRS, I don't know how how involved were they? Were they more so involved with children that were in foster homes or because of the culture and what was going on down there at the time? Were there 
was truancy less of, of something that they were actually actively involved with? I don't know. But to only have one visit, I think of it from my perspective now of you want to get that child and protect them. But then from, you know, from the child's point of view, from my point of view, boy, I was, I was glad because who knows what foster care would have been like. And I got to tell you, when I was a detective, there were times we'd be doing search warrants, whether it was violent crime or drugs and stuff. You'd go in there and it's like, it, I mean, it was clear you're go, you're going into you're going into foster care. We've or you know we got to get you out of this situation because neither parent was capable of solving it. Whether it was the father uh, who was addicted and the mother of the enabler, or vice versa, didn't matter. That was not an environment the child was going to be able to survive in. And there, unfortunately, there were a couple times the child didn't survive. You know, um, and but it, you know, I mean, you're getting through school. At, we want to lead up because there's going to be a significant event. Before we tell everybody what it is, let me kind of bookend it. How old were you when this very significant event happened? 13. All right. So you're working up into it. So you're going through school. Does anybody at any time ever, like even a parent, say, hey, Julie, come over to our house, have dinner? You know, did anybody ever just realize what was going on and say, hey, let us help you out? Anything like that? No. Um, I always, like I said, we were, we were very compartmentalized. And so, uh, and what I mean by that is it was kind of like our business is our business. And that one friend that I told you that I have her, I was, I was blessed enough. And I say blessed because I think, I really think God was just protecting me the whole time. Um, I was fortunate enough that she happened to be the lunch lady at the school. So when I was there, I would, I would get, um, extra kind of, yeah, I would get food handoffs and, and that to me was just a saving grace. Absolutely. And you know what, that's, that's a very observant, um, person that can recognize children that are in need without having to, you know, question them in front of their friends, which would be extremely embarrassing and alienating. Well, you know, I remember that it's just like, as a kid, it was embarrassing. You know, if you're a child and stuff mm-hmm. like that, it was embarrassing. You didn't want anybody to know right. um, what was going on at home. Um, so you start getting older. Do things stay the same? Do they get better? Do they get worse leading up to, you know, being age 13? How was how from like fourth grade on up through sixth and seventh? They get They get progressively worse so much so that, you know, there's a final ultimatum between the parents, between mom and dad. And, and she realized the danger that we were being put in, forget about her, forget about, you know, the situation with, you can only help somebody who's addicted to a certain extent, and then you can't. Um, And so she realized kind of the elements that would be brought around us, or, you know, maybe it, it, Maybe there were things there that I don't even know about that the fa- the people that my father was running around with and or working for, you know, family is a very real element. And that's how you get to somebody. And so she she physically removed us and said, you have to go and get the help that you need. Jeez, I, I just, you know, my heart breaks I, I mean, even now because I think back to you know, all the indicators, all the warnings, my parents went through some of the same stuff. In fact, my dad ended up moving out because it was the final ultimatum. It's like, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. Um, and, but that obviously didn't help. So let's, let's lead up to, um, 
there's a there's a very significant day in your life. Uh, let's lead up to that. What was going on? You know, like the couple days before. What was leading up to um, when you said you met this homicide detective? So I and and the interesting thing is, I, I didn't meet him. I I it was it was a phone call. Um, but you know, things had without that element in the house. You know, we were still on WIC on food stamps, all of that. But things were there was some normalcy created. And so it's kind of like that you can let your guard down to a certain extent, but then what happens is, and and I don't know if this is a lot of children who grew up with this, then the other shoe falls. And so you're, you're not really being able to visualize success, but you know, oh geez, what else is going to happen? And that's, that's when this, this call took place. I know you talked about getting help. Did he ever attend treatment? So he told my mother that he was on a list for rehab. Do I believe that he ever got treatment? No, I don't. I think he was saying that to keep the door open. He he loved her with all of his heart, but not enough to uh, not enough to actually go there. So much to the point where he would tell me on the phone. You know, it's it's just really hard for me. And I I know that when somebody is addicted to drug, they're they're their brain is is really impacted so much so that he he became sort of um, just his emotional center. I would say it gone off his ability to feel things, and he would say he would go to the park, watch parents with their kids in order to just try and feel something, try and get back to where he wanted to be. So I know I know he wanted to, he just couldn't make that decision. But and before we get into this this incident. I mean, this is kind of sensitive to, to ask you, and, and if I'm overstepping, just tell me. But you saw other kids and how, I'm assuming you saw them happy and having friends and participating in activities and sports and music and whatever it might be. Did that, did you ever, you know, kind of sit back and say, why isn't that me? Or, man, I would love to do that. Why can't I do that? Did you ever get angry? I did. I did at the end, and I'll tell you a little bit about that conversation. Um, but no, during it, it was it was kind of like I was in my own witness protection program of just trying to keep protected. Um, and so I never, you know, I never saw. I did see that with other kids and their and their families, but I never questioned why it wasn't me because that was my normal. Anytime I got to spend with my father when he was coherent was a treasure to me. A kid's love, you know, I mean, there's nothing greater. You know, it's, it's like, a, it's like, it's kind of the equivalent of a puppy. You abuse the dog or whatever else, but they've got nothing else. I mean, this, the, anything is better than nothing. Anything is better than mm-hmm. being alone. And this, we saw that a lot with abused women. You know, they, why do you want to stay with them? Because they were more afraid of being alone than they were the abuse. Yeah. That went I with. never. I never equated it to that. I never did, but that makes complete sense. And when you are I, in my thought process, all growing up, I just always thought he's going to, he's going to die or he's not going to be there the next day. He's not, you know, when you see a parent with a substance coming out of their mouth and they don't wake up for, you know, 20, 20 something hours and you see that over and over again and you just, you don't know how much time you're going to have with them. Well, 
that leads up to this. So when we're talking about this incident, was he living at home at that time? Was he apart? What What was your family situation? No. So he, he had the opportunity to, he had family, we had family in Philadelphia. And so, uh, you know, my mother gave him the ultimatum and said, you, you have to, we can't be near each other for this. You have to go and get help. You have to go through rehab. And he assured her that he was going to do that. And so he moved up there, um, in with, a, a a relative in order to do that. Was the relative involved in the drug trade too, or uh, have issues? No, she she wasn't. I would say she was a, a a benefactor and maybe maybe an enabler to a large extent for him. But no, she was in no way in, involved. Actually, that was part of my family that um, I'd say back in the Holocaust generation came from. They immigrated from Russia to Philadelphia, and so I think just anything to do with family, they were just bend over backwards any way they could help. Hmm. I haven't heard that term somebody have used before, uh, the Holocaust generation. Were they Russian Jews or were they? Okay. Yeah. So much so that they actually, in order to protect, not all of my family did this, but my grandfather did. They changed our last name to Americanize it. Mm-hmm. What was it originally? A Dipperstein, which in, in hindsight, I'm not to disparage anybody with that last name, but I'm I'm sort of glad I didn't grow up with that name. <laughs> that might have invited. Well, you know, you never know. It might you have might have had some explaining to do when you told yeah. your last name. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about this. Um, there comes a day when you say you get a phone call. I assume it's from Philadelphia. It is. Did you it's answer from- the phone or did your mom? My mother did. Thankfully. Well, tell it. Walk us through that day. So it was, you know, I was, I was actually on my way to school that morning. And, um, when I say like some sense of normalcy had started to occur in my life and she got the call and immediately she broke down. So I knew it wasn't good news. And, you know, how old were you? 13. 13. 13. And so she was going through, you know, I could hear her questions. How did it happen? What happened? Are they sure? Are you sure? Um, but, you know, I couldn't hear what was going on on the other side. I just knew it wasn't good news. And I take it your brother probably is about five or six at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Was at, at home. How did, your, how did your mom handle it? How did she explain it to you? She said, your dad's been killed. Um, and he, you know he's up in heaven, and he's not you know he's not in any pain anymore. Um, but one thing that's really that's really tough for me is so I took on that protector role for the family, and the last conversation I had with my dad wasn't a good one. It was a uh, you know, and I know from an adult point of view, a parent's point of view. He was probably thinking, you know, terribly about himself and how he didn't come through again. The last conversation I, and it's, it's a silly conversation probably to a lot of people, but he didn't send a card or any acknowledgement for my brother's birthday. And I knew how much that would mean to my younger brother. And I just said, you know, like, why can't you get it together? Why can't you just do this little thing? And that was the last conversation. I, I remember not saying 
not saying that I love you. And that was really tough to just know that I could never say it again. How many days before was your last conversation? It was a couple of weeks before. You know, and we've heard this too. A lot of people say they go back and they say, if only I'd said this, you know, I wish I would have said this. And it's like, that's the whole thing about life. Things have become dis, dis you know, abnormal had become so normal. You didn't, right. it didn't register the same way. And um, so when your mom's explained to you, when do you finally start getting the details of what happened? Because there's a little bit in the notes, but I don't want to give it away. So when did you start finding out actually what happened? After college. I wasn't, I wasn't so fast forward a little bit of time, a long time, and I wasn't ready to hear the details. Um, I had actually made up in my own mind because I know this is strange enough, but our, our family dynamic was such so that, you know, my father's family didn't really interact with, with my mother. I don't know if they thought that, you know, it was her fault or I don't know what was, we were told after my father's funeral. And so that homicide call came after the funeral, which is strange enough. And so in my young mind, I thought, okay, well, maybe he faked his death. Maybe he's not really, because I didn't have that tangible, concrete, proof of, you know, here's a piece of paper, here is, you know, that that I knew or I didn't see him being lowered into the ground. Mm-hmm. Who called you then? Who called originally then, called your mom that day to let her know? It was somebody from the homicide department in Philadelphia. Okay. And so fast forward later to when I was in college and and actually, this was post-college. This was actually after I had my first job and I was emotionally ready enough to go down that. I didn't want to involve my mother, any any of my family, but I tracked down and actually he just such a kind man. His name was Sergeant Tim Cooney in the Philadelphia Police Department. And he walked me through and shared every detail and answered every question that I wanted to know. And he said, if you ever make your way up here, I will show you the evidence. Will Anything that you need to kind of be at peace with this. Well, the big question at this point, was it ever solved? It was not. And I tell you something that, you know, I just, one of the things that really I didn't know necessarily from that period of time when I found out to when I was in touch with Sergeant Cooney was actually how he died and um, just the bravery that he showed. You would think that somebody in that condition who was just gone down the path, I mean, he, he had part of the evidence, he had crack on him when he was, when he passed. So, but his, his fortitude to try and live through that was just, from that point on, that was just really an example to me of how I want to live my life. Was was he involved in a deal at the time? He was. So the, the, the story was he was at a, you know, he was at a house where a gathering was going on and, um, the sergeant told me what they think their theory is that it was uh, the Jamaican mafia. And I 
I guess he was running for them or doing deals for them in his last days. And I don't know if he had squandered the money or didn't, you know, didn't give back product or what the, what the story was there, but immediately somebody came in or multiple somebodies came into that location and he started to run from them uh, to try and get in his vehicle. They shot him in the back of the head and he got in his vehicle, drove himself to the hospital. How would, I don't know how you would do that in, in that condition, crashed in front of the Germantown hospital and they came and pulled him out and 30, they tried to work, work on him and, and save him, but they pronounced him, um, 30 minutes later. Man, I don't even know what to say. Just the fact, you know, you think about getting shot in the head. Most times you think that's fatal. You know, the stuff we've worked, that's that's like how somebody even survives long enough to be able to drive to even get Mm -hmm. to the hospital. I mean, you're right. You talk about the will to survive, the will to win. It's obvious you've got that. But from the time, um, how long, so walk us through to after you get the news, You've got to make arrangements, obviously. Does, do they do they bring him back down to Florida? Do you go to Philadelphia? How does that work? So I never, we got the news after the funeral. And so I- hey, Whoa, as, wait a minute. Nobody, did they not know or did they just not tell you? Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.